Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I am doing great today. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Awesome. Well, you know what? I want to take this moment to uh, congratulate you on the recently announced Decades Awards by Skippy Jammer, recognizing you as being part of one of the top pairs teams, along with Arthur Coddington for this decade that just passed. So congratulations on that recognition. Well-deserved. Thanks, Randy. That's awesome. Yeah, I was uh, very, um, very honored to be nominated with Arthur for that award. It was, uh, I don't know, I would, uh, I don't want to say it was surprising. It was a little surprising because I, I don't know, I like to think I'm a little bit humble, but um, I also felt like, you know, if we had tried for a third, we would have had a good chance. But uh, we were just, we felt like a really strong team. So yeah, it was cool. And uh, I thought it was interesting that you had asked me on the previous episode about Arthur and I playing together. I wonder if you knew that was coming. <laughs> Actually, I, I didn't. I thought that was really interesting synchronicity there. I was like, oh, it was kind of out in the universe. But uh, yeah, I mean, you and Arthur, you know, you won two titles in, in the pairs division. I think the pairs division is the toughest division to win. So I thought it was a well-deserved recognition. So again, congrats. Cool. Thanks. Well, uh, with that, let's talk a little bit more about competition. So coming up on uh, frisbeeguru.com on the 18th, 19th, and 25th, 26th of July, we will have the Tiny Room Challenge 2, hosted by Daniel O'Neill and James Wiseman. So it should be really fun to watch. The first one was amazing, so I, I expect nothing less out of this one. I was totally engrossed by the first uh, iteration of this Tiny Room Challenge, so I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing where it goes with this particular run. One thing that's interesting is we've had, so we've had the first Tiny Room, then we had the ladder challenges, and so now we're having the second Tiny Room, which means people have had a lot of time to work on their Tiny Room skills. So they're good at performing in front of the camera, they're good at doing really heinous moves in small spaces, and I think the strategy is also probably kicking in in people's minds, so they know when to go big and when not to go big. So I, I bet we're going to see fewer of those disappointing drops and just more amazing stuff. So it's going to be awesome. Yeah, I agree. And did you ever think you would say the phrase tiny room skills? <laughs> um, not in the context of freestyle <laughs> frisbee anyways. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, why don't we get into today's episode? Um, we are going to continue our conversation with Crazy John Brooks, and he's going to share with us some of his early freestyle partners and early inspiration. So enjoy. Who were some of your early freestyle partners? Like when you were doing the NAS tour, was freestyle one of the events that you were competing in? And who were some of your partners along yeah. that journey? See, the 79, that was in Kansas City. I, um, was I got to play with uh, Chico Mackey, another person off of the school show tour. Chico, let's see, uh, not really organized jamming, but uh, I remember some of the idols came right out of the magazine, you know, like the, uh, remember the Pearlberg Roads back cover? That was a cool line, like uh, just going, now how the hell did that even happen? It's just too perfect. And uh, early on, the Coloradicals were, you know, still that, 
the difference between a harp and a and a bass drum, you know, it's something I had never experienced. So anytime I saw them, I knew that I wanted to be a part of that energy. I wasn't really concerned as much with uh, the physical part of it, but, you know, the metaphysical, that energy that they created. We all had our skin, you know, bump up to different teams, but uh, I don't know if I have, like, an exact idol. Just names out of the out of the memory banks are, like, Tony Taffy, of course, Hal and Neil, um, Mark Martin used to play in Kansas City, uh, Let's see, uh, Snuffy and Wally, they both like to spin it right in front of their face. I have to mention Ace Mason because any of the organization that happened that wasn't done by Tom Mingle was done by another guy, Ace Mason. So he also was really uh, critical in bringing events and bringing players to Kansas City. So eventually you move out to Santa Barbara. You leave Kansas City. So what was the draw of moving to Santa Barbara. I mean, I, I think I can guess. I mean, it was a mecca of meccas for, for Frisbee and jamming. So how did you end up living in Santa Barbara? Well, I had, uh, let's see, uh, trying to remember this conversation with Scott. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about 430 Sturdivant because that was how I got out there to begin with, was I got an invite to the Frisbee house in Sierra Madre. I got a call from out of the blue, not at my house. I didn't even have a phone number back then. I was at a party uh, uh like a birthday party for crazy at marcy cecil's house another mentor of mine frisbee event promoter producer uh and he said it's scott zimmerman it's like no way i think i just met him like earlier in huntsville or uh maybe bull run earlier that year in virginia and uh, he said dude bonapain just moved out so there's a room here and I just thought you might be interested. You were talking about going for the overall. And uh, I was like, hell yeah. And uh, I said, I'll, you know, they'll take it. What do I need to do? He goes, well, you just need to be out here. When are you coming? And then I think basically it was 72 hours later, he picked me up at Union Station. You know, it just happened. And uh, so thankful for that. Uh, that got to Sierra Madre. I was there for a couple of years with Scott and then later Danny McInnes. And uh, so well, I remember uh, a lot of the, fun with Scott was, uh, you know, Scott's a great, uh, incredible overall champion, uh, the man. He was wanting to work on his freestyle stuff, and I'm pretty stoked as a jammer wanting to work on my overalls. So it really did play uh, hand in hand. We got a lot, a lot of hours, a lot of days together. He went on to play for uh, the Foothill Guts. You know, I, I was the cabana boy for, for uh, Foothill, that uh, world championship season, too. So we got got to see a lot of LA's top of the echelon there, you know, back to Donna Pace, Selinsky, McLean, uh, Bonapane, Zimmerman, Duvall's. Yeah, this was, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff popping. That is, has nothing to do with freestyle. Sorry, that was just part of, you know, the overall fever. You know, overall, I remember you just wanted to do anything and everything you could. If it was raining, you know, I'm going to go inside and throw into the wall or something. And but uh, Scott equally obsessed. So that's what you did back in those days. Everybody did everything. And, you know, if Scott Zimmerman would have given me a call and said, hey, Randy, come move. I would have been on that plane in a heartbeat. So what year did you move to Santa Barbara? Let's see. Uh, that seems to be 84, 85. It's hard to remember. It was after a huge party at the Frisbee house. And uh, I 
didn't really move there. I woke up there. That's how I moved. But uh, <laughs> they packed all my stuff in Monkey Man's bus, dude. I had no clue. Uh, I remember it was uh, Chipper and I had made friends, and uh, we really got to have a good jam at the wintertime one year, uh, La Cunada at the wintertime open. And I told him, you know, Bud Light's going full. I don't know how longer uh, Hal Baby can, you know, work with things. Neil's already out. Kim's gone. And uh, said, you know, would you consider it? He goes, man, I think it would be really cool. You know, let's just talk about it. And then a few months later, you know, I, I went to Kansas City, sat down with Hal, had the talk, and then we called ship from there. So I, I pre- I'm pretty sure this was... 84 is when uh, I gave him the call to, uh, we had a gig down in Amarillo that he, he'd be perfect for. So that was his audition. So, okay. So talk about how the Bud Light team formed and who was on the team and just how did all that come about? Fountain Town Jammers, Hal and Neil and I, Hal Kurz, Neil Adams. Um, and then uh, actually Hal's girlfriend at the time, Kim Sharp, was playing once in a while when it worked for her. and. Okay, so I used to make these tapes, and, you know, I couldn't do it myself. You'd chop them up because I wanted to go three, four different songs and mix it into one five-minute thing for our shows, you know. It was, it was cool. So I was going to this uh, radio station, the Super Q, KBEQ, and they were on the plaza. So I was going in there in the daytime asking if someone could help and, you know, just right out of the blue, you know, shorts and whatever. And what? And uh, so this is what I was wanting to do. So they introduced me to somebody, and then... I came to know that person. That was Michael Bryan, and he was a great help. This was back on big old two-inch tape back then, and um, he left. And then I went back to make another tape because we wore that one out, dude. And then went back to make another tape, and he was gone. But they introduced me another guy. He was the overnight guy. So you got to come back when he's here. So I went back to the station with Hal. It was like one in the morning or something during the shift. And uh, we explained everything and he was happy to help. He and Hal struck a particular awesome friendship and just became friends. All of a sudden, Dave gets this job as the rollout, the launch account executive for Bud Light up at Needham Harper and Steers in Chicago. Like, boom, he hits the big time overnight. And he knew about our Frisbee shows and stuff. He loved it, thought it was cool. But he pitched Anheuser-Busch. They said, okay, let's see it. So we set up an audition. That was, um, yeah, that's 82. So we set it up at the Uptown Theater in Kansas City. And uh, we did two different shows. The first was to open up for, the first was Asleep at the Wheel. And they were just a cool band. We already like had heard the music and stuff. So, But man, those lights, I'm telling you, this theater it was just awesome. It looked like uh, it looked like the Washington Mall when the lights came up, but uh, it was it was real. Had a fun show. Had some drops. So we go back after they play. Now we're going to open up for Pure Perry League. So that show went a lot better. I remember one of the highlights was, uh, you know, these are tight stages. They're in preset. They got bands are going to play. So it's something that became kind of signature to Bud Light, but. Uh, I remember Neil was working this awesome roll and he's going to jump and catch it, but he misses it and ends up like finger flick brushing it, hits his knees, bounces back up and just lunges like the guy did in Wait Until Dark. 
and he totally catches the disc, but he slides right over the edge of the stage, and it's like it was like a uh, like it was just like this like paint rolling over the edge. Of, he slid right onto this long dinner table full of drinks and plates and stuff, nothing but ladies at the table. And this guy's a looker, I'm telling you. And it's just like look at him. He just like smiles and kind of wobbles around and stuff. Stuff is just clanking, blank slam. Who knows what dresses were wasted and stuff was broken, but he just kind of. Ambly nimbled back up onto the stage, just got out of trouble. And, uh, you know, everything went through. Everything got approved. And Anheuser-Busch, you know, went for it. So that was kind of the, the lighting of the fuse, I guess. That's a great story because it's a, a, an accidental save that seems like it might have gone totally wrong if he lands on a dinner table and smashes drinks. But the spontaneity and the creativity and something, something, they just liked it. Yeah, like no harm, no foul. I, I agree. He's, you know, you're playing around alcohol uh, is what we learned a lot about. Uh, we, you know, there's a lot of jokes and this and that. But, you know, the bottom line about this environment is not everybody's going to like what you do and what we're about to do and about what we care so much. But we knew this. We knew that, you know, there's, there's haters have been around forever. But you know what happened is our haters turned nice in like five minutes i've seen it happen before unless somebody just had a real you know problem with one of the three of us or whatever but uh uh you know when you got alcohol it's a very sensitive environment it can be it can get out of hand and uh, i think we learned a lot about reading people and giving them what they want rather than what you'd like them to have so after those initial shows, Anheuser-Busch buys off on the whole idea of you guys touring and doing shows. So when do the floodgates open up to where you guys are just like touring and this is now your life? Uh, the contract, the initial contract was uh, June 6, 1982. I remember our first signing. So we left uh, the first, we did like 60 days was our first tour. I think we did uh, silly numbers. It was uh, 28 schools in 30 days or something in Texas, and then very similar in Louisiana. And we, did, we would do these tours uh, sometimes in the spring or sometimes around back to school too. Mostly back to school was towards the East Coast. Uh, spring break was, you know, far and wide. It wasn't the ideal situation, you know. Uh, that's why we switched to their sports programs, their existing sporting events and venues and stuff. So that was a that was a great jump. I think it did more for the brand too. It kind of freed us up to do what we wanted, rather than be limited by you know nightclubs and small stages. We got a little bit of everything at that point. Yeah. Well, how long were you expected to perform? Well, I mean, you, you know, your show is your length of your routine generally three to five minutes. Yeah. Okay. So it was just kind of doing routine. You weren't having to like take up a half an hour or something. You guys were just going to go in there and give them yeah. the freestyle show. Yeah. It's all all based around that uh, that uh, live captive routine, the choreographed routine, something solid. And uh, the only thing different with these stadium shows or larger sports venue shows is that I would bring distance into play. Might have access to a couple people from the audience, but uh, even back then, they were pretty tightly secured and not too many exceptions. We didn't really ask. We just did it. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's that's really the, the way I prefer anyway. Right. And so who were the original team members? Uh, Hal Kurz, I like to call him the founding member. Uh, him and Dave Strandberg, you know, they, they're the one that, that struck the gold, I think, together with that, that friendship and 
and Dave's genius. Uh, Neil Adams from Springfield, Missouri, a super accomplished overall player uh, in the uh, early 80s. He actually, now I believe he won Discathon at the U.S. Open in La Mirada uh, one year, possibly 82 or 83. And uh, Kim Sharp, a lot of people don't know that we did have, uh, originally had a our female, was our fourth member on the Bud Light team. Kim Sharp from Kansas City. She left for a pretty great reason. She got, she hit it big with Betty Ford, the modeling agency, and moved to Milan. So I'm right. I used to work the Good Earth in uh, Pasadena when I was living at Sierra Madre. That's what you do when you're a pro fribsy player. I was uh, biking home one time, and I'm going to stop at uh, my little my little local turn right store, and they were closed. But I'm going, wow, it's a new sign. Check that out. It was Kimmy. In a full-blown, full-size cardboard cutout, right? She was she was the the spokes lady for Bacardi and Diet Coke. Wow, yeah, yeah. Middle of the night, dark, you know, Sierra Madre streets, not nobody out. And I'm going, what the hell, Bobby? Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Small Planet. Oh, one thing about Small Planet, Hal Baby Kerr's. His original success was gymnastics, and he took it way far. He was on the gymnastics team at Arizona State University and was a team partner with Ron Gallimore, who went on later to have some to have some great success in the Olympic Games. That's where all that gymnastics comes from, Al Baby. I love that touch, man. There's a few pictures out there that got some of his uh, more signature moves, the, the branny and the backflip and the uh, his tumbling was awesome. That was a good flair. Uh, that's the original team. And crazy. Just there was some, you know, we have some alternates along the way. So, but the roster did change after that. Went down to Chip and then we added Joe. And then. So do you have any stories that you want to share that you haven't shared yet about that old team before Chip and Joey joined? So, dude, some of the most fun stuff was our very first year out. By the time we got to spring break, let's see, this would be 83, um, we knew the ropes. We're going back to, you know, claim what we didn't claim before, because this is a mad scene. South Padre Island was our, our first experience. It, it just kind of, it, that lodges in your head as, as you know, your your point of embark. But, oh, man, this place is just a hoot nanny for weeks. And a huge flux of over 150,000 kids, you know, two different weeks in a row. So when we'd have a meeting, we'd go out and do what they call a trade call. And they'd have the Anheuser-Busch staff and their young adult, you know, their their team. You know, we have your branding team and your technical people that set up stuff. And so it's a t- – this particular place is called Blackbeard's. Uh, this table they had set up for us is like 30 feet long. They got the whole Anheuser-Busch table, the whole Anheuser-Busch crew here and everything. Everybody's dressed up, Frisbee team. There's just one seat or like two seats empty. And uh, it's all because this lady, Miss Budweiser, is coming. It's a new promotion, Miss Budweiser. And then, like, you can hear him say the word, like, Playboy. So we're like, what? And then, anyway, so we're sitting there and having fun and stuff. And then it's like this vacuum kind of hit. And the big door opens up the front of the place and it's like you could hear like like the silverware would stop and then the and then this lady walks in and it's like whoa it was gnarly you could tell it was her she had the Budweiser big old straw cowboy and thing and the red and white shirt hi y'all 
and it was just rolling. She had her crew, and wow, you were all just stunned. It was just grim. It's Budweiser, you know, became a big part of this spring break package. All I'm saying is, uh, before she even got to the table, something happened. I'm just saying, our eyes met, and we we ended up like making a really good friendship. That was one of the busiest tours. Now I remember that when we did this initial full-blown Padre assault, we had also acquired for that week. They did a couple other gigs for us, and they actually competed under the Budweiser light for a couple of events. But I got the Velasquez brothers signed on for a little spell. And the Padre, thing, this one particular Padre trip was just outstanding. We had, you know, two full teams going at it. And a lot of Frisbee, a lot of people just mouth open, just, oh, man. But that was good. They were were really, really fun and really focused. These guys, consummate professionals. And I really loved being around them. You know, these guys really love the game. I mean, they, that, that's the heart and soul and everything. That is the Velasquez way. It's all in. And what a perfect team for that format, right? Oh, boy. You know, and of course, they knew all the ropes at that point. But the Velasquez, man, they were just like kind of it's fantastical. So I, I respect that. Yeah, I mean, they were some of my heroes, you know, growing up, my inspirations. It was like, you know, Donnie and Chip and Joey, of course. But then there were the V-Bros, man. They they like had the light shining around them and they could put together a performance, you know, and they would take you on that ride. I mean, I remember the beat it routine and like, wow, they just went somewhere where I think is amazing and I want to go there. I didn't realize the V-Bros were part of the Bud Light scene. Yes, in that, uh, in that, uh, I believe it was in that first year's time where they uh, they hopped on for maybe a half a dozen different experiences. Hey, one thing about the V Bros, remember, you know, these guys. It's not just the frisbee part, you know, that you have to have to be strong and good and confident with when you're going to do this professionally. There's a business side to it, you know. There's there's a there's a there's a front end, and and it. And uh, I just respected how those guys had been under so many different banners and successfully and, you know, on good terms and both on the in and the out on good terms. And and I love that. That's a true working professional sports promotion team. Really have to consider them part of the, you know, the gold brick of professional Frisbee conduct. Yes, Craze. The V-Bros really were the gold standard uh, for sure. You know, they were not only amazing performers, but they were amazing technicians. And as you say, also just amazing people. So they kind of checked the list of all of those things and they stayed true to it for their whole careers. And even to this day, Irwin and Jens are amazing. You know, the V-Bros obviously had a big impact on me and when I saw them early on and just their performance skills just kind of blew me away. So, Jake, I'm curious to ask you, did the V-Bros have any impact on you? I mean, their careers were kind of at the end when you were coming on to the scene. And uh, just curious uh, your thoughts about, you know, who they were as a team and who they are. Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm almost a little embarrassed to admit this, but I didn't know who the V-Bros were when I was a new player. And even I'd been to several competitions and thought I knew who everybody was, but I never had heard of them. So I think the first time that I ran into Irwin was in Boston in maybe 2001, was it 2001, 2002, when you won co-op with him and Ted. 
And uh, I remember seeing him and thinking, man, this guy's really good. Who is he? How come I've never met him before? And people are like, what? You don't know Erwin Velasquez? You don't know the Velasquez brothers? Where have you been? But of course, I mean, why would I have ever crossed paths with them unless they're going to tournaments? I'm going to. It's not like we have YouTube today where you can just go see all the greats. I, the videos didn't exist. <laughs> Oh, you know, that that explains it. So I just figured, oh, you must have seen them on video. But YouTube wasn't as prominent as it is today back when you were first coming on. So that makes total sense. I love that, that you, you see Erwin Velasquez and you're like, wow, that guy's really good. How come I don't know who this is? Who is that? That's great. Well, Jake, uh, again, I just want to say big congrats on your Decades Award recognition as being part of the Tops Pairs team. And on that note, I will talk to you next time. Yeah, talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, Shooting the Frisbees, and live streaming freestyle frisbee.